Hey, this morning, Acts chapter 3. Continuing our study here through the book of Acts. Uh, the first study in our book of Acts here was about the Holy Spirit being the power of the church. And then we got into the purpose of the church after that, which is spreading the gospel of Christ. Then Acts chapter 2, we were introduced to the people of the church. Day of Pentecost came. And then last week we talked about how the church functions, how the church works. And that was the programs of the church. What you see here in Acts chapter 3 is kind of a change now in the book. The first couple of chapters introduced us to how the church was going to work and how the church was going to flow. And then here from Acts chapter 3 on, it's now this application of doing it, getting out and doing it and making it work. And what you're going to see in the book of Acts, they have amazing moments of success. They have arguments. They have fights. It's the good, the bad, and the ugly of the church. This is a very honest book on what happens when you get a lot of believers together to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's good. There's some toughness in here. But it's a neat thing. And what we see here in Acts chapter 3 is them now going out and starting to minister in this capacity and seeing what the Lord does. So let's do a smart thing. Let's pray and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, as always, you wrote this. We just pray that you would teach this through your Spirit. Let your Holy Spirit guide and direct in all ways and all things and bring this all together, Lord, in your name. Amen. All right, let's jump into this. You've got to remember at this time, the church has grown from about 120 people now to a couple thousand, about 3,000. And this is only about a month or like about two months after Jesus died on the cross. So this is still very new. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, when a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. Now let's stop there for a second. A couple of things going on. You see Peter and John going into prayer. Now as good Jewish guys here, there was prayer three times a day at the temple. 9 a.m. and at noon and at 3 in the afternoon. And what they're doing is they're going to the three... 3 p.m. prayer service here. Prayer services lasted about an hour. So that's what they were going to do. And so as they're going to the temple to do this, there's this man that's been lame since birth. Now we know from Acts chapter 4 that this man is over 40 years old. So he has been a, a cripple for all of his life. And if you've ever been around anybody who has struggled with that, you know how atrophy sets in and how the muscles just decrease. I mean, this man... His life consisted of, basically, this is just my opinion, take it or leave it. If the first prayer started at 9 a.m., somebody probably picked him up, carried him to the temple, set him at the gate, brought about 8.30, 8.45, spent all day begging, probably about 4.30, picked him up, carried him back home. That's his life. That's his existence. He has nothing else. He can't move. He can't walk. He can't do anything. His whole life just consisted of being this crippled man and for four decades been able to do nothing and just carried to this temple, sat down. You beg all day. You got three prayer services. So you know at 9, noon, and 3, you got a bunch of guys coming. And everybody knows when you're going to church, you already feel guilty enough. So throw a little money in. Make them feel better. Now, I think it's very interesting that this man is sat by the gate called Beautiful. Isn't that what the world does? We have a tendency to take these things that we find uncomfortable and we try to cover them up. I do a lot of hospital visits. And as you walk into hospitals, they're always beautiful. The landscaping, the building, the decorations. And once you get past that initial foyer, then you get to sickness and death. It's a beautiful building with a lot of sickness and death inside. It's the same thing with cemeteries. Cemeteries are gorgeous, covering up a lot of death. I find it very interesting that here's this man by the gate, beautiful, but yet 
He is a mess, if you will, and he needs the Lord. And that's exactly what comes and that's exactly what happens here. Now, a couple points before we move on. Peter and John were able to be used by God in this situation because they were people of prayer. They had a regularly scheduled appointment with God, if you will. Now, I don't want you guys to get legalistic about this, and I don't want to feel like homework, but I encourage you, in your time with the Lord, have a regularly scheduled time with God. That way you're open to Him talking to you, you're talking to Him, and it's a time where you could really set that time aside and say, Lord, that's yours. For me, it works out to do it in the morning before any of the kids get up. For Dawn, it works out for her to do it in the evening when all the kids go to bed. I don't know what your work schedule is or your life schedule is, but I encourage you to do it. Since John and Peter were there and available for the Lord, they were then used by the Lord. It's a beautiful thing. And we're going to see what happens here in a little bit. Because what happens is, as they get a chance to go, verse 4, and fixing his eyes on them, with John, Peter said, look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. I love that. I absolutely love that. Here's this guy hoping for a shekel. Just give me a few pennies. Peter and John say, look at us. Get his attention. I don't have any money for you, but I got something better for you. See, by Peter and John... Having this moment of opportunity to go with the Lord, they also had an opportunity to minister. I encourage you as you come out here for church, be it a small group study, a Sunday or a Wednesday, a lot of times when we come out for church, we come out with the mindset of feed us, bless us. Hope we get something out of the worship. I hope we get something out of the message. I hope there's an announcement that is something I want to do. And I'm just being honest, it's about us. I encourage you as you start coming out to church, also start looking at it as an opportunity to minister to others. You know, as the church has grown, we don't know everybody now. You may recognize faces, you may see some people. I encourage you, and I know this is really difficult to do, to walk out of your comfort zone and maybe go minister to somebody. As you walk into this building, and instead of saying, Lord, feed me, Lord, give me an opportunity to feed somebody else. Give me an opportunity to minister to somebody else. Peter and John, my opinion, were walking to the temple for themselves. They were going to go pray, Lord, use this time to grow us. And what happens is they actually had an opportunity to minister to others. You've heard me and Rich say this all the time. We go to a hospital visit, we go to a house visit, and we go with the expectation of blessing somebody else, and we walk away blessed. That's the beauty of it. So I encourage you, as you come out here to church, also keep in the back of your mind, as you pray for the worship and the teaching and and everything, also say, Lord, how can I be used by you today? Maybe there's somebody I can meet, maybe there's somebody I can minister to. As I'm going to get fed, I also want to feed somebody else as well. So we see Peter and John being men of prayer, scheduled appointment with God. We see them having an opportunity to serve. And guess what else we see? That no matter what you do in life, there will always be somebody asking you for something. No matter what. Wherever you go, somebody will ask you for something. They will call you at home asking for something. You'll watch commercials on TV asking for something. And this time of year, anytime you go someplace, there's always a table set up in every store asking For something. Now, what do we do? Well, depending on the situation, if it's on TV and one of those commercials comes up that makes us feel uncomfortable, that's really easy. You flip the station. All of a sudden, those sick, dying kids just disappear, just like that. You know, with the phone calls, the call waiting now, or I should say caller ID, I don't even have to answer it if you don't want to. Or you can say, you know, I just don't want to deal with it. And with Walmart, you see the table at the food entrance, you just go in the other entrance. You know what I mean? It's really easy, right? 
This is what we do as a society. When there's something that makes us feel uncomfortable or awkward, or it's not the type of people we want to minister with or be around, we just ignore it. That's what I love about Peter and John. Verse 4, look at us. They make contact with them. They give him something. And then verse 7, and he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. Peter and John were willing to look at this guy. Peter and John were willing to touch this guy and get involved with him. If you want to be involved in ministry, if you want to be involved in Christianity, it is messy and it's dirty. You have to accept that. You have to accept that you're going to get involved in people's lives that you may not normally do. But that's also the beauty of it. Sometimes you feel overwhelmed by it. I feel completely overwhelmed sometimes. Sometimes people call and they have a health situation that's overwhelming. They have a home life situation that's overwhelming. And they're saying, what do I do? What do you do? Not too long ago, I had somebody from the community call me. Um, not involved with the church, but they said they heard from somebody, you heard from somebody, that possibly we as a church could help them out with something. And I said, sure, what's, what's going on? I said, would you help with bills? And I said, well, you know, it depends on the situation. Why don't you fill me in on what's going on? I'm behind on my house payment. Okay, well, how much are you behind? $30,000. We can't do that. But what I can do is this. I can pray with you and I can give you John 14, 27, where Jesus says, my peace I give you. And that's what I can do. See, when you're faced with an overwhelming situation, it's easy to just say, I can't. I, this, this guy's lame from birth. This guy's been a cripple for 40 years. There's, what can we do? So we throw a few coins at them just to make ourselves feel better. Isn't that the way the world handles problems? We just plug money into it. We create programs. We create things just to make ourselves feel better about it. No. If you really want the world to change, you change it one soul at a time through Jesus Christ. And that's what happened with this guy. One soul was changed through Jesus Christ. Once again, look at what he said in verse 6. Silver and gold I do not have. But what I have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. When you don't know what to give somebody, when the situation you are faced with is so overwhelming, when you say, I don't even know what to tell you to do, you give them Jesus. You give them the peace of Jesus, the wisdom of Christ, the comfort of Christ. It's not about what you do. It's about giving them the Lord. You change the world one soul at a time through Christ. And it has to be personal. You've got to get out there and look these people in the eye. You've got to touch the body. You do. Too often we try to minister at a distance because it makes us feel uncomfortable or awkward. We have to get involved in people's lives. Turn, if you will, with me to uh, 2 Kings, please. 2 Kings 4. This is a story that we've gone to a couple times before, but it bears repeating. 2 Kings 4. I see a lot of Christians that have a heart to serve, but they want to serve from a distance. If you really want to impact somebody, you need to look them in the eye, tell them about Jesus, offer your hand to them. That's how ministry gets done. Here in 2 Kings 4, it's a wonderful story, and it's a long passage, so I'm going to kind of summarize some of this right here. Well, what happened is there's this, this woman that Elisha gets to go minister at her house, and her and her husband don't have any kids. So what happens is Elisha comes and blesses them and says that you guys are going to have a child. And so they are blessed with this amazing blessing. Look at verse 16 of uh, 2 Kings 4. Then he said, About this time next year you shall embrace a son. And she said, No, my Lord, man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. Now, verse 16 is important. 
That's a big promise. Big promise. This couple's wanted a child for a long time. Here's a man of God promising a child. The woman's response, don't you lie to me. We got this little rule at the Irvin house. We can joke, we can tease, we can say stuff. But if you say, I promise, it has to be true. Just that's, you know, we can say a lot of crazy, funky things. But, and that's why my boys will say, if I say something strange to them, like, hey, guess what, boys? Next week we're going to go do this. Their first response is, do you promise? Because they know that that is truth. Right here, verse 16, this woman is like, don't you lead me on. Don't you say to me, I'm going to have a kid if I'm not going to have a kid. Haven't you ever felt that way with the Lord where maybe you have this moment of peace where you feel like the Lord's going to do something, He's going to heal this issue in your life. Maybe it's a physical, emotional, or spiritual. But there's part of you that says, God, don't you lead me on like this. If you're going to do it, make sure you do it. Verse 17, the woman conceived, bore a son when the appointed time had come, of which Elisha had told her. Isn't that amazing? Miracle. I mean, that's the, the high of life. But guess what happens? Verse 18. And the child grew. Now it happened one day that he went out to his father to the reapers, and he said to his father, My head, my head. So he said to a servant, Carry him to his mother. When he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon and then died. Boy, have you ever been let down by God? I've talked to people who have lost a loved one. And you hear them say, Why would the Lord give me them if he was just going to take them away? And there's frustration, there's anger, there's disappointment. I've had people say, not even about the death of a loved one, maybe just something in life. Why would the Lord allow this to happen in my life, to give me this excitement, to give me this joy, but then just to take it away a little bit time later? Is that God's sick sense of humor or something? So this woman has already been scarred a little bit. Verse 16, don't lie to me. She gets this wonderful blessing of a child. Verse 20, and the child dies. Verse 21, she went up. Laid him on the bed of the man of God, shut the door upon him, and went out. Then she called her husband and said, Please send me one of the young men and one of the donkeys, so that I may run to the man of God and come back. Verses 23 and 24, the husband says, Well, you know, why are you doing it? She says, Everything's fine. She gets a donkey, gets a servant, and says, Move, go fast. So what happens then in verse 25, Elisha sees her coming, knows who she is, sends out his servant Gehazi. Says now in verse 26, please run now to meet her and say to her, Is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with your child? And she answered, It's well. Now, when she came to the man of God at the hill, she caught him by the feet, but Gehazi came near to push her away. But the man of God said, Let her alone, for her soul is in deep distress, and the Lord is hidden from me and has not told me. So she said, Did I ask a son of my Lord? Did I not say, Did not deceive me? She's basically saying, Why did you do this? You made this promise to me, you gave me this child through the Lord, and then the Lord takes this child away. Anger, frustration, disappointment. Now, we're not done yet, but let's tie this back into the book of Acts. Don't you think that man's parents, when he was born, were a little disappointed? Don't you think there was a bit of frustration there? I mean, the, the, the goal of every parent when they have a child is safe, healthy baby, right? That's what everybody wants. I remember a few years ago at the Thanksgiving service, we always, uh, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, we always do just praises. No prayer requests. It's just praises and thanks for what the Lord has done. And then a lot of times people lift up a praise for a child being born, a praise for a grandchild being born, and praise for my son being healthy, daughter being healthy. And they're all neat. I remember a few years ago there was a gal that comes out here, and she had a couple of kids that were born that had some health issues. And so everybody was lifting up these praises about their healthy children. I remember she raised her hand and she goes, I want to praise God for the unhealthy ones. That really hit me. That I want to praise God... For the unhealthy ones. Because sometimes we walk in disappointment, right? 
We walk in disappointment that this child is not quote-unquote perfect. I had a pastor friend that his youngest son was born with Downs. And so he was telling me one time about how there's this initial shock of God, why? But then he said, that little boy has become the light of his life and always in all things. So it's easy for us to stop and say in verse 28, hey, it's going to be okay. You know, in verse 28, it's not okay. This is a child that was promised to her supernaturally. She had, and now this child is dead. I understand verse 28 in the sense of, don't you do this to me. Verse 29, then he said to Gehazi, get yourself ready and take my staff in your hand and be on your way. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. If anyone greets you, do not answer him. But lay my staff on the face of the child. And the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So he rose and followed her. Now Gehazi went on ahead of them and laid the staff on the face of the child. But there was neither voice nor hearing. Therefore he went back to him and told him, saying, the child is not awakened. Now you've got to understand the staff of Elisha. This is not just some stick. This is the staff of Elisha. I mean, if you want to make an emphasis on something, this is a miracle stick. I mean, this is something pretty impressive here if you study out the life of Elisha. So, I, personal opinion, I think Elisha and Gehazi, as soon as they put the staff on the child, I think the assumption would be this child is going to bolt right up. And so Gehazi went, laid the staff on the child, and nothing happened. Now, has that ever happened to you? Now, think about this woman's gone through. Couldn't have a baby, now actually has a baby. Baby now has died. The child has died, I should say. Everybody says, well, go put the staff on the kid. Oh, it's going to be okay now. It's not. Have you ever had that moment where you say, okay, we prayed about this, it's going to work out. So you pray about it, and guess what? It still hasn't worked out yet. You give it over to the Lord, and it still hasn't worked out. I don't know how many times as a pastor someone's come to me struggling, and I say, you know what, let's give it over to the Lord. Let's trust God's going to move and work in this. They come back to me later, and they say, guess what? What? It hasn't worked out yet. We've been in those positions. Verse 33, excuse me, verse 32, when Elisha came into the house, there was the child laying dead on his bed. He went in, therefore, shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. He went up and lay on the child. He put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself out on the child, and the flesh of the child became warm. He returned and walked back and forth in the house and again went up and stretched himself out on him. Then the child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. And he called Gehazi and said, Call the student my woman. So he called her, and he said, when she came to him, she said, pick up your son. So she went in, fell at his feet, bowed to the ground, and then she picked up her son and went out. Okay, why did we go read this whole story? Ministry happened when what? Elisha touched the dead body. When does ministry happen? Ministry happens when you look somebody in the eye, and you reach your hand out to them, and you say, I want to get involved in your life. Ministry does not happen when we send the staff the rod and just say, I hope it takes care of it. If you have somebody in your life that you really want to see changed in Christ, you've got to get prepared to get your hands dirty. You've got to look them in the eye. You've got to get involved in their life. You've got to reach your hand out to them. You've got to touch the spiritually dead. I think too many times as Christians, we try to minister at a distance. It's awkward. It's uncomfortable. I don't like this. This is not the type of people I want to hang around with. They make me uncomfortable. You've got to get over it. You gotta get out there and minister to those that called. I think back to Acts 4 now. How many people walked by this crippled man for decades, threw a little money at him, and said, There, I hope it helps. Finally, somebody looked this man in the eye, reached their hand out to him, and said, In the name of Jesus, I want to see your life changed. If you really want to see people's lives changed, look him in the eye, reach your hand out to him, and tell him in the name of Jesus, I want to get involved with your life. 
That's how it happens. So what happens back to this man now in Acts chapter uh, 3? Well, verse 7, his ankles are healed, his feet are healed, he receives strength. In verse 8, so he leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the, of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at all what happened to him. Look at verses 8 and 9 again. Look at the repetition. Leaping, stood, walked, walking, leaping. God's trying to make a point here. This guy's healed. Think about this. Four plus decades of crippled legs healed just like that. That's impressive. That's why it's a miracle. Verse 10, they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. That's the definition of a miracle. A miracle is no explanation but God. We throw the word of miracle out way too often. Every weekend in sports, there's a miracle. No, there's not. They're not miracles. A miracle is no explanation but God. There is no explanation to this but God. That's the miracle of it. Peter and John went to pray, saw this man, and said, rise up and walk. I don't think it was planned. I don't think Peter and John got up that morning and said, hey, you know the lame guy that sits by the gate beautiful? Yeah, let's go heal him today. That's a good idea. I don't think that's what happened. Sometimes when God moves the miracles of it, there's no preparation for it because you just got to be in the moment of where the Lord's leading. Pastor Chuck Smith tells a story that I've always loved. He said that one time they were having a prayer time after church, and they uh, I've shared this with you before. Some grandkids wheeled their grandfather up to Pastor Chuck to have him pray over him. So here's this grandfather coming up that is in bad, bad physical shape. And so Pastor Chuck prays on him, and he says, In the name of Jesus, I tell you to rise up and walk. The guy gets out of the wheelchair and walks and was healed. And everybody's rejoicing, and, and God be the glory. And the grandkids then tell Pastor Chuck, we just wanted you to pray for the cold that he had. <laughs> That's what the Lord does. I don't think Peter and John said, let's go heal him. I think Peter and John were available, felt the Lord lead, and then ministered. I think that's important. That's what you see in the book of Acts, an availability to God. When you have that regularly scheduled time with God, you're saying, Lord, you are important and I open up my life. Speak to me through your word, through worship, through prayer. When you come to church, you're saying, Lord, I want to be fed, but I also am opening myself up an opportunity to minister to others. I accept the fact that people will always ask me for something. I'm not going to get bothered by it. I'm not going to get upset by it, but I will look at them as opportunities to minister and to serve. And when I don't know what to do, I just give them Jesus. Because it's not about money, it's about Jesus. And it will save the soul, save the world one soul at a time. So now what happens? Verse 11. Now as a lame man who was healed, held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Why look so intently at us as though by our own power of godliness we had made this man walk? Don't underestimate the importance of verse 12. This church is new. It's early. It's fresh. Peter, easily in his flesh, could have started up Peter's house of miracles. He could have started his own ministry. He would have been a hit. First thing Peter does in verse 12 is deflect the praise. If you're involved in any type of ministry, if you're involved in anything in the Lord, and there's been a blessing through the ministry that you are part of, best thing you can do is give all the credit over to the Lord as soon as you possibly can. Because it's not us. One of the little phrases we use out here at church is, every person is replaceable. 
And it's not because we mean that meanly, because it's the Holy Spirit that does the work behind the people. It's not the people, it's God moving and working. Peter, right from the beginning, this isn't us. That's important to note. This isn't us. And what you see here now, he does this message from verses 13 through 26. And this is what I want you to listen for as we go through this. He just does three things. He tells them about Jesus. He tells them they need to repent. And he backs up a scripture. That's the greatest message you could give somebody. I'm going to tell you about Jesus. I'm going to tell you you need to repent. And I'm going to back it up with Scripture. As we read through this, remember, the people he's talking to, Jesus was just crucified a couple months ago. This is still fresh in their head. So he makes sure they know, verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. He goes, you guys killed Jesus. Verse 14, you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead of which we are witnesses. He goes, you guys are responsible. You are guilty. Verse 16, and his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong. Peter is saying the man that you killed is the man that healed him. So he's trying to tell them, look at what you did, but at the same time, look at what Jesus can do now for you. Whom you see and know, yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. That phrase, perfect soundness in the Greek, is a very unique term. And it means complete overall health. I don't think we could realize how good this guy felt. This guy was healed. Completely healed. Perfect soundness. Verse 17, Yet now, brethren, I know that you did in ignorance, as you did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. What do we do with this information? You guys realize you killed Jesus. Jesus is who made this man well. You guys need to understand who Jesus is. So what do you do? Verse 19, repent. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who has preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. So, you guys crucified Christ. Christ is the one that healed this man. Christ wants to heal you. You need to repent. And now he's going to back it up with Scripture. Verse 22. For Moses truly said to the fathers, And the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it should be that every soul who will not hear the prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow as many as spoken have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets, and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of earth shall be blessed. To you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you, and turning away everyone from your iniquities. So Peter has everybody's attention through this miracle. And he very simply does this. Jesus is who healed him. Jesus is whom you crucified. You need to repent of that. And here's the scriptures to back it up. How simple is that? You know, too often we complicate Christianity. Christianity is simple. Jesus loves you, died for you, you're a sinner, repent, and the scriptures back it up. That's what it is. And when you see these messages in the book of Acts, it's amazing how concise and to the point and simple they are. I think sometimes when we get a chance to minister to people and share with them about Christ, we overcomplicate it. Tell them about Jesus. How was this man healed? In the name of Jesus. So what are we going to do? Let's tell you about Christ. Too often we make Christianity about us 
and ministries and people. It's about the Lord. And in the book of Acts, you just see this constant focus on the Lord. And that's what Peter did. He's setting the tone right here from the beginning. It's always going to be about Christ. Always. Now what happens, verse 1? Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in the custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and about the number of men came to about 5,000. So, here's what happened. Day of Pentecost, church is about 120 people. After day of Pentecost, 3,000. Now, about 5,000. When we keep it simple, proclaim Christ, stick to the word, God takes care of the rest. It's that simple. You know, you never you see in the book of Acts the apostles or the disciples saying, what do we need to do to get people's attention? I think having a guy that's been lame for 40 plus years all of a sudden get healed, that's a pretty good way to get people's attention. The Lord will take care of his own PR. He always does. It's our responsibility just to tell people about Christ. Keep it simple. But here's the catch. As you try to tell people about Jesus, that's what's going to happen. Verse 2, people will be greatly disturbed. Anytime you go deeper in the Lord, there's always going to be this group of people that are bothered by it. Now, when you stop and think that everybody would be happy, I mean, here's this crippled guy that can now walk. Let's just rejoice that he's okay. No. They're upset because why? Verse 2, they mention Jesus. See, here's the thing. If I call myself a pastor, I'm okay. people are okay with that. But if I water down the gospel, and I just ambiguously mention God, and I start saying that any God that you believe in is kind of the same God, but we just call them different names, oh man, you can be really popular. If you just tell co-workers, hey, I'm not going to push anything, but I'm just going to pray for you, and God loves you, and God cares, and you know what, Allah is the same as my God, it's the same as your God, you could be really popular. Problem is, this whole name of Jesus thing is really, really divisive. They're not necessarily upset about the healing. They're upset, verse 2, about Jesus. See, a lot of these pastors and people I see on TV, their message is just this cotton candy of God and love. God does love you. And the way God showed his love to you is through Jesus. we got to mention Christ. But as soon as you mention Christ, people get disturbed by that. Now think about the message here today. The message is Peter and John being ready to be used by God. Being willing to have people ask them things and be used by God. Being willing to step out there in faith, look them in the eye, reach their hand out to people and minister to people. Giving them Christ. That's what it's about. So, now the application to this is what are you going to do about that? Some of you are going to go to work tonight. Some of you are going to go to work tomorrow. Some of you are going to go home, go to school. What is it? Now, what are you going to do about that? Some of you may reach a point where you stop and you say, Okay, I hear everything you're saying, and I want my life to be different. I'm going to go into work tonight. I'm going to work tomorrow. And it's going to be a focus on the Lord in all ways and all things. I'm going to go shine for my coworkers. You know what's going to happen when you go to work tonight or tomorrow? Your coworkers are going to be the biggest jerks in the world. And they're going to be greatly disturbed by you trying to go deeper in their lives. Some of you may be in a marriage right now that's not that great. So you may say, okay, I'm going to go home and I'm going to love my wife, my husband, unconditionally. You're going to get home and find out that your spouse is the most unlovable person in the world. It's difficult. 
They're going to go and say, I'm going to be a light. I'm going to be a witness. I want these things to change. And what happens is you try to make changes in your family, at work, in your witness, in your personal life. Instead of people patting you on the back saying, great job, what you're going to find is verse 2, people being disturbed. They don't like it. And any time as a Christian, when we say, Lord, I want to go deeper, we have to be ready for the opposition that comes. You know, anytime we do a baptism out here, one of the things we always say is, you're making this public stance for the Lord. And as you make this public stance for the Lord, you're putting a huge bullseye on your back. Be prepared that as soon as you say, I want to be publicly baptized in the Lord, guess what the enemy is going to do? He's going to hit you with everything he can. So if you leave this church and you say, I want my family to be different, realize it's going to be a battle. I'm going to go into work tomorrow and I want my witness at work to be different. Realize this is going to be a battle. If you say, hey, I'm going to start getting up early tomorrow. Pastor mentioned regularly scheduled time with God. I'm going to start getting up a half hour early. Guess what your sleep tonight's going to be like? It's going to be awful. You're going to wake up every hour. And then when your alarm finally goes off, you're going to stop and say, you know, I wanted that extra half hour with the Lord. Uh, I'll start it tomorrow. That's what's going to happen. We need to be ready for this. We need to be prepared for this. Peter and John... We're prepared. And what you see here, and I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, Acts 4, they're threatened over this. Their response is, Lord, give us boldness to stand up even more. If you really want things to be different, get ready for the battle. Two passages and we're done. Can you go to Matthew, please? Matthew chapter 5. I think a lot of times... We we get encouraged by a message, we get encouraged by the Lord, and we say, I want things to be different. But then we run into the opposition and we falter in that time. Our strength becomes weak. Matthew chapter 5. What did Jesus say about this? Verse 10. Matthew 5 verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for this is the, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What did Jesus say? As soon as you decide you're going to love your spouse unconditionally, you're going to find out how difficult it is. As soon as you say, I'm going to get up early and pray, it's going to be difficult. As soon as you say, I'm going to be that light and witness at work, it's going to be difficult. As soon as you say you want things to be different at home, at work, in your life, personally, privately, publicly, what have you, it's going to be difficult. Jesus is trying to forewarn you of this. He goes one step further. Last passage, John 15, please. Last passage, John 15. I don't know how many times people have contacted me saying, I want things to be different. We pray, we encourage, they go out, they try, and then it falters. It is difficult to make those spiritual changes at work and at home and personally. John 15, please. Verse 18. John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, Jesus speaking, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world... The world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. How simple is that? If the world did not stand behind Christ, why is the world going to stand behind us? If Christ's own family turned on him, Your own family will probably turn on you when you try to go deeper. If if people rejected Jesus and rejected his message and mocked him, people will probably do the same to you. But it's a battle. And we realize the answer is Christ. And once again, we talk about how verse 12 was a transition verse in the book of Acts. Peter could have took the glory and ran with it on his own, but he didn't. He deflected it to God. 
Acts chapter 4 as a transitional chapter. Because the church could have said, you know what? If every time something amazing happens in the name of Jesus, people are going to threaten us and beat us, it's not worth it. They said, no, Lord, give us more boldness. Every time you try to go deeper in your family, personally, privately, publicly, wherever you, you're going to face opposition. Don't give up. One of my favorite verses is in Galatians 6. Do not grow weary while doing good. If God has given you a plan and a purpose and a path to walk on, then I encourage you to walk in that path. And the Lord will give you the strength to do it in all ways and all things. Marv, you're going forward here for the final song. This is one of those messages where we have to stop and say, do I want things to be different in my life? Do I want things to be different in my home life? Do I want it? Am I willing to go out and look them in the eye? Am I willing to go out and reach my hand out to the hurt and loss and saying, I want to get into your life? Elisha was willing to touch the dead body. Are we willing to do the same thing? If there's something on your heart where maybe you need prayer, you want to go deeper and it's a struggle, or maybe there's something in your life where you know you're called to go minister, but you need the strength to do it, find us. We want to pray with you. Rich and I will be right up over here to my right. And while Marv's doing the final song, if you've got something you want to pray about, pop up up here and pray with us. We'd be more than willing to pray with you about anything. And Marv, if we're praying with somebody, just close us out with prayer. So I may not be back there to shake your hand, so I appreciate you coming today. hope you have a blessed time. When service is over, I encourage you to check out Angel Tree, check out the meals, check out the prayer code over there for Dean too. But Rich and I will be up here to pray, and if you have something you want to pray about, if you want things to be different, why don't you come up? We'll pray with you about that. Marv, it's all yours.